Well, good morning again. My name is Sean, the lead pastor here, and we're working our way during this time through the New Testament book or letter, it's called an epistle, uh, to the Philippians. And as um, before we get started into that, just to kind of remind you what's going on during this time, maybe you're visiting today, or maybe you're not really familiar with church that much. This is not a chance for me to get up here and give you a, a harangue. This is not the time for me to get up here and tell you certainly how to vote or what the church thinks about these issues. This is when we take time to look at God's Word and we try to understand what God's Word says, and then we want to apply that to our lives. And so this is not up here to hear my words. You don't need to hear those. No one does. Um, but this is, we really are trying to believe that God's Word is in the Bible, and so we are trying to see His Word come forth in our lives. And so we, because we're in a, an epistle, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians, a church in the ancient city of Philippi. And so we're going to get to see um, him, the Spirit through Paul, critiquing Christians. It's a good opportunity for us to kind of help sharpen our swords a little bit, because very often it's easy for us to think that our job is to tell the world what's wrong with them. But this is kind of an internal critique where Paul is setting them up to kind of help them move forward past some issues that they have in their church. And so this morning we'll be at the very end of Philippians chapter 1. It's found for you on page 10 in your order of worship. There's also a children's version there at the bottom of that page if you want to follow along with that. It's also found on page 921 in the pew Bible there, or I guess the chair Bible there in front of you. And um, you can turn there again, page 921. So before we get there, just kind of get us into the text today. So I want to say a quick phrase. I am an American. Can I just let that hang there? Okay, so take all the feelings you just have and kind of just like, let's, let's look at those feelings. There are, there are privileges of being an American. There are many things to be proud of of being American. There are some things people are embarrassed of about being an American, and there are duties about what it means to be a citizen, to be an American. And as cultures kind of ebb and flow, we are in a moment in our culture when duty is not really thought of that much when it comes to citizenship, but privileges and rights are very much being emphasized. I mean, can you, rem can you imagine those of you who lived to watch it live or those who had, to, who had to memorize it and learn it in school? Remember JFK's inaugural address in the early 60s? Remember that? Ask not what your country can do for you, right? But what you can do for your country. I mean, can you imagine any political party winning its base with that? I can't, maybe. I would love to be, have my mind changed. Let's, let's have coffee. I can't even imagine that having any traction in our culture today. Or just last summer, the Atlantic magazine had this large article kind of haranguing the American public education sector and basically making the case that civics education has pretty much died in the last 50 years of American public education. I remember taking some social studies classes that we called it, but I never took a civics class. Maybe, you know, again, show me where I'm wrong, change my mind. And I'm bringing this up. Why is he talking about this stuff? Is he finally going to get political? No, I'm not. But I'm bringing this up because Paul uses the metaphor of citizenship to try to teach a gospel truth in this passage today, to show the unity that Christians really need to have when they're in suffering. So with that, would you please uh, turn with me now to Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Again, it's found on page 10 in your order of worship. This is God's Word. <clears throat> 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of, they, of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. <clears throat> this is God's word. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we ask that as we come before your word this morning, that you would change us through our encounter with you in this text. Holy Spirit, open this word up to us and us to it, that we might be convicted, that we might change, that we would see the beauty of Jesus in every word and the loveliness of the gospel, and that we would desire it greatly. We pray that you would do this, Father, by your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So where they've been so far in chapter 1, Paul has anchored them in the gospel, reminding them that it's all about Jesus. And then he, he prayed that they would understand what really matters, that they would be able to focus on Jesus and the gospel and set aside their personal preferences. He even went so far in the early part of this chapter to pray that they inside the church would be not offensive to each other nor offendable by each other, that they would be able to just get along because they recognize recognize that stuff is not of primary importance. Jesus and the gospel is. He then goes on to live out that prayer himself, showing how his current imprisonment, how him being in prison in Rome, awaiting a trial before the emperor, probably Emperor Nero, if you remember him from history, not a good dude. Okay, this is like Emperor Palpatine himself. You don't want to go to him for justice. He's, he's on, so he's kind of on death row. Nero can decide that this Christianity thing is a threat to the government. Paul's its chief you know, representative. Let's end this now. Or he could let Paul go and continue to minister. And Paul is very honest in a way that frankly shocks us. And we looked at this last week. Paul's very honest and he says, I don't know how to pray for that because my desire is to be executed so I can be with Jesus. Which, you know, that sounds really extreme. Okay, right? And he says, but that's what I want. Then he says, my duty, though, I realize is to go on living so I can help the church out more. And I'm torn between my duty and my desire. I really want to pray for this, but I know I should pray for that. So he shows how he himself has to set aside his own preferences to focus on what Jesus really wants. And so now he wants them to understand these resources because we're, as we're going to see as we go through the book of Philippians, they got some trubs. They got problems. They got discord and issues. And so Paul is showing how the gospel applies to him first. And then from that place of credibility, he's showing how they can do the same thing as well. And so he's going to show this through the duties of citizenship and through a bunch of battlefield images. <clears throat> that gets us to our theme for today, kind of what we're going to orbit around. We kind of see what this text is really about. And it's this. The worthy face their adversaries united knowing their status and struggle are gifts. 
And we're going to be unpacking that throughout our time together this morning. So it starts out with Paul telling them that they are worthy citizens. It begins, he says, to live worthy of the gospel. We could actually translate that verb a little different. Paul says to live as citizens of the gospel. And I want to land here for just a little bit because this is this, these uh, three verses, 27 through 30, are actually one big sentence in the Greek text. And this is the main verb of this one sentence. It means to live as a good citizen. Here's what's going on in a way that we kind of don't get. I really want us to understand this. I want to show you a picture of a World War II poster. I have a copy of this hanging in my office. It's a famous poster. That's Winston Churchill. Hopefully you know who that is. That's Winston Churchill. He was the prime minister of what we call the UK today during World War II. And this poster, in two words, wraps up whoops, what Paul is trying to say here. Live as a British subject in such a way that your life deserves victory, that the sacrifices we're asking you to make for the good of the war effort will pay off in victory. That whole ethos caught in two words, that's what Paul is saying here when he says, be citizens of the gospel. Be worthy citizens of the gospel. Now, again, that doesn't really get traction with us that much, but in ancient Rome, citizenship was a really big deal. We know from historical documents that only about 10% of the Roman Empire ever achieved the status of citizenship. At its height, most scholars say we're talking 56 million people. So 5.6 million people out of that had citizenship. The rest were freemen. The rest were slaves. The vast majority were slaves. And so citizenship became an identity. It became a status marker. It became, and it was very valuable. People wanted it. And you were to participate in things to be a good citizen because it was so valuable. You would want to help Rome expand. You would want to help Rome do well. Their whole world was wrapped up in religious things. So there were religious sacrifices and rituals for the good of Rome to pagan deities that being a good citizen meant you participated in all of that. Add to that, we're told in Acts chapter 16, which he looked at a month ago when Paul planted this church, that Philippi is a colony of Rome, which means it had a direct connection to Rome. It wasn't just another city in the empire. It's like a daughter city, a little Rome. It had privileges that other cities didn't have. It had a higher percentage of citizens. And we know from archaeological evidence that this was a place that lots and lots of soldiers retired to. So it was a military town. If you know anything about military towns, you're going to see lots of flags, aren't you? Those are some patriotic people. So you bring all this together, and Paul is saying, take all that stuff you feel about Rome and recognize that you're a citizen of the gospel instead. And he says, be who you are, a worthy citizen of the gospel. Worthy. That's one of those words that kind of makes us a little uncomfortable, isn't it? It's one of those words that I say, be a worthy citizen of the gospel immediately right now. I mean, you're doing it right now, aren't you? You're making lists. You're thinking of behaviors you haven't done, behaviors you should do. You're thinking of things you did, you shouldn't do. You're thinking, you're, you're, you're making all this stuff works-based, shame-empowered changes you need to make in your life to be worthy. And thank God that Scripture doesn't leave it up to us to figure that out. In the next verse and a half, 
He defines exactly for us what being worthy is so we can get his help to do it. So this is not a do better talk. This is a manifest the gospel talk. So he tells us a couple of things, three different things about what it means to be a worthy citizen. We're going to wrap this all up under the idea of being a victorious citizen. The first thing he tells us is standing firm in one spirit. This is a military concept used in military literature. He's in a military town, probably with a military congregation, so he's using stuff right out of their literature. So in ancient times, you probably have heard of this maybe, I hope, called the phalanx. The Greeks invented it. It was a square of soldiers. The Romans took it and perfected it. And basically, you had a sword and you had a big body-sized shield. And you had your sword in your right hand, shield in your left, and it protected you on this side, but it also protected the guy here on this side. So when you got in a tight little square together, all of a sudden, instead of fighting as one individual, you were this unified front, and you just started winning all the wars. The Greeks were like, hey, we're really onto something here. And Rome used it and just like conquered the whole known world at that point. And Paul is using that exact terminology and metaphor right here where he's saying, this is how you stand firm in one spirit. And remember, as I've said from the beginning with Philippians, that word Y-O-U, it's plural. It's like always plural in Philippians and most of the New Testament. So it's y'all. So he's not coming to individuals and saying, you buck up and you be pure. He's coming to them saying, y'all stand in unity together be an impenetrable shield wall. Church unity, in other words, is what standing firm looks like. Unity, what Jesus begged for, what he prayed for his last night on earth. You can read that in John 17. It, that kind of unity is only possible when we really recognize what truly matters so we can lay aside the things that don't matter. And what truly matters, he says earlier, is focusing on Jesus and making him the big deal. See, there's discord in the church. There's disunity in the church. And whenever that happens, if it's in a church that has what we call a high view of Scripture, that means we actually believe this is God's Word, and so we, we believe that we have to submit ourselves to it, in those circumstances, church issues are rarely over truth. They're rarely over the gospel. They're over some application. They're over some preference. And so Paul is trying to get them to see, look, y'all, keep it about the gospel and let everything else fall away, and that way you'll be unified together. Your preferences won't rule. He's basically saying, look, y'all are fellow citizens in the gospel. You're on the same team. See, suffering Christians get that in a way that non-suffering Christians don't. I mean, in places where the church is underground, where pastors are routinely arrested, where the church has to be completely secret. I mean, do you think the churches in China argue about the font in the bulletin? Right, now you laugh. I had it at a previous church in a different state. I'm not gonna say where. I had a guy who we, 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 bought, we brought in this new administrator who changed the way that we did our bulletin. And instead of having everything justified towards the middle, towards the staples in a booklet, he had everything justified towards the outside. And I had a person sit me down and t for like five to 10 minutes haranguing me over the immorality of that kind of justification in the text. I, I wish I could, was making this up, I'm not. Now, what I knew that he didn't know I knew is that he didn't like this person. And so it didn't matter what this person did, it was bad. And that's what Paul's talking about here. 
we take these issues of our preference and we make it such a big deal that it's more important than Jesus. There's a little John Lennon in all of us that says we're bigger than Jesus. This is it. This is what's important. And Paul says, no, stand firm in one spirit, in unity. He reminds them that the opponents are out there. They're not in here. And so instead of eating each other, we stand in unity. That's what it means to be a worthy citizen of the gospel. The next thing he tells us is he tells us striving side by side for the faith. And notice it's the faith, not in faith. He's not calling them to some sort of subjective emotion. Just get along, be, you know, just be faithful. No, he's talking about an actual defined, agreed upon set of truths that was called the faith. And that's really important to know because this book is probably written about 50 A.D., there's this, there's this historical distortion out there that so many people think, well, Christianity didn't kind of really coalesce until like hundreds of years after, after Jesus' death. Actually, we're talking like less than 20 years, they could say the faith. And you'll find that phrase throughout the New Testament. People knew what it was. So Paul's saying for that set of truths, strive side by side for that. And again, he uses another military metaphor right out of the boot camp. This one's really fun. So early 2000s movie, Gladiator, Russell Crowe. Remember this one, right? No, it's okay. There we go. So he's a high-powered general, gets betrayed, is enslaved, starts working his way through the gladiatorial rings, and he makes it all the way up to the Super Bowl. Rome, Colosseum before Caesar himself. He and his fellow slaves are brought to the middle of the Colosseum and the big opening act of the show that year is gonna be a reenactment of this famous battle. And they're the bad guys, they're the losers, they're in the middle and the tunnels open and, and they don't know what's gonna come out of the tunnels to try to kill them and he kinda just very softly says to his fellow slaves around them, whatever comes out of that tunnel, we stand a better chance if we stand together. Most of them agree, he takes command, and they end up winning, which is not what's supposed to happen in the show, right? They ruin the show by winning. That's the word that Paul is using here. Stand firm in unity. When the cultural pressure comes, when the outright persecution comes, stand firm in unity, and then we strive, we counterattack for the gospel. Now, before you get all excited... Paul means prayer. I know, that sounds a little weak, but look with me at Romans chapter 15, 30. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Paul says when you strive together in unity, what you're going to do is you're going to pray. Paul loves to do this. If you're familiar with the whole section in Ephesians where he talks about the Christian armor, he's like, man, you got your sword, you got your spear, you got your shield, you got your stuff. You ready? Great, pray. Paul loves to remind us that God has exerted violence on his son. And so every time my immature heart tries to justify a, a reason, surely I can punch this person for Jesus, right? Surely. The scripture's like, no. God has exercised violence on his son to the full. And so there's no more violence anymore. Jesus absorbed it all. Unless we fundamentally don't believe that Jesus was enough, and then, yeah, we need to add our violence, right? Paul is not saying that. Paul is saying when it comes time to strive, it's prayer. Oh, Christian, you want to change your culture? It's prayer. It's more time on your knees. 
not the other things we do that we think will change the culture. You know, like, share. So, third thing, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Yet another military idea. I'm telling you, I think his church was full of military people. So, again, going back to the ancient world, because this is where this is from, anybody ever heard of this phrase, with your shield or on it? This is class participation time, with your shield or on it? Okay, not many of you. Okay, so, in ancient Sparta, the way that the wives and the daughters and the children would say goodbye to their warrior fathers and brothers heading off to war would be the final farewell would be with your shield or on it. And what they meant was, come back to us carrying your shield, or come back to us as a corpse being carried on your shield, but don't show up without your shield. And here's what's going on. After you have stood firm in unity in the battlefield, after you have striven together and counterattacked, if there's still people left, they attack back. They advance right up to you. They even advance through you. And at that point, after your brothers have fallen in battle and it's not as organized as it used to be, if you're not trained, if you're not ready, what do you do? You drop your sword, you drop your shield, and you turn around and run. And so that ancient Spartan farewell was we would rather you die than retreat. And Paul is given the spiritual version of with your shield or on it here. The exact verb used in military literature for that panicky retreat is what this word here for not being frightened is. Paul cuts and pastes right out of their military manual and says, you know not to do this, but you don't do it for Jesus either. You're not frightened. Gospel citizens don't panic and then retreat. Now, in context, what is Paul talking about? Well, he set up unity is the big deal. Prayer is the main weapon. So what would be the panic response in that? It would be turning on each other. It would be, oh, the culture is falling apart. We're under super-duper attack, and yeah, gospel and Jesus, but this issue right here is pinnacle, and if we don't hold this issue up, the culture is going to fall, and why aren't you helping me? You don't love Jesus if you're not helping me with this issue. And so we're turning on each other. That's what we do, and you know we do it. It could be an educational philosophy. It could be a political philosophy. It could be a specific cultural issue where you say Christians must be involved in this or that one, Christians must not touch that one. We do this, don't we? We take something God has given us and put us on our heart, which is a great thing, and and called us individually. You need to spend some time here, and we pour our hearts into it, and because it's so important to us, we start to associate it with our faith. And when we do that, we start to all of a sudden go, wait, why why isn't that Christian involved in this? This is super important, and my faith is so wrapped up in this. I wonder if they're even a Christian if they don't care about this. And you know we do that subtle shift, don't we? We do that. That is what Paul says is a panic, frightened response. The culture's falling apart around you and you're doing your best to hold up things and you feel like you're alone and your other Christians don't care as much as you do. And you start to judge and you start to cause disunity. Paul says that's the fear response to avoid because the opposition wants to divide us. So, Paul says, stand firm in unity, strive side by side in unity, and not frightened into disunity by opponents. And please notice, in the midst of all this battlefield stuff, Paul calls them opponents. He never calls them enemies. 
The enemy of the church is Satan. The very real entity, I know it makes some of you uncomfortable to say he exists, he exists, he hates the church, he loves to cause disunity, and the tools he uses are people, and the tools are never our enemies. The tools are our adversaries, the tools are our opponents. And so what's the result of all of this? Look with me at verse 28. Paul says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. So the idea of being a clear sign is the idea of being a demonstration, or Christians are living illustrations of this principle that Christianity, or excuse me, Christian unity under pressure proves the reality of the gospel, and it proves the destruction of the adversaries. That's intense, right? It proves our salvation is real. Yeah, we like that, and it proves that their destruction is real. Ooh, a little uncomfortable with that one. But see, there's grace and there's hope here. Unity, even when opposed, means the church has something real. And we demonstrate that we have something real. And our opponents see that, and many of them are just like, I want something that real too. And so perhaps they might flee to Christ. And you bring all three together and you get what? Being a worthy citizen of the gospel means faithfulness is our weapon against the opponents. Faithfulness in our unity together, faithfulness in our prayer for our culture together, faithfulness in holding each other in love and not letting us ourselves be divided. Joyful Christians, especially when they're opposed, are powerful weapons in God's hands. It shows there's something real in our life. And finally, we see Paul says, after you're worthy and after you're victorious, then you're gifted citizens. So he says, all opposition is a road sign pointing to the gospel. It's a clear sign of their doom or it's a clear sign of your salvation and, God and your grace. So when God brings us that grace, though, it doesn't always come in ways we expect. Look with me at verse 29. It says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Paul says it's been granted. It's been graciously given or gifted unto. It says God has graciously given us what? That you should believe literally unto him. See, Paul's reminding them in the midst of their discord, in the midst of their disunity, that y'all, we didn't weigh the evidence in our sinful brains. We didn't, we didn't convince our dead and sin hearts that this is attractive and then tell our under the sin wills to choose team Jesus. That's not how it works. No, what Paul is saying is just as Jesus stood at the tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus could not help himself. Lazarus couldn't make his heart stop again. He couldn't make himself quit breathing. He had to obey the voice of his Lord and come. So too, Paul is saying here that God, the sovereign Lord, in his irresistible grace and mercy came to his people and said, live and come. It was granted for us to believe unto Christ. In the gospel, we're told that we're sinners, and it used to tick us off, but now we believe it and we hate our sin. In the gospel, we're told that God's wrath and curse is onto us for our sin, and it offended us deeply and sounded so backwards, but now we believe it, 
We want to be rescued from that wrath. In the gospel, we hear that Jesus lived for us and then died to forgive us, and we think that's barbaric, and we thought that was crude, but now we cling to Jesus as our only hope. In the gospel, we hear that on the third day, Jesus bodily rose from the grave, and we think, what a quaint little myth all those Christians believe. But now we can't help ourselves but say, hallelujah, Christ is risen. In the gospel, we hear repent and believe unto Jesus and be saved. And whereas before, that meant nothing to us. We had no desire to do that. Now we, we couldn't stop ourselves if we tried. As we cast off all religion and we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. All of that's right there in verse 29, and that's biblical Christianity. But guess what? There's more. God has graciously given to us to believe in Christ. Hallelujah. God has graciously given to us to suffer for Christ. Yay. <laughs> right? Uh, thanks, God, but um, I'd rather not. Right? See, when opposition comes, when culture's beating down the door, God gives us grace for that trial. The evidence of salvation promised in verse 28 is shown in the grace given in verse 29. He says we get to suffer through these things with joy. Paul shows us here this amazing truth that he's going to unpack later, that for Christians, when we suffer in Jesus, we're actually somehow suffering on behalf of Jesus. That we actually die to ourselves and are raised in Jesus. That kind of intrigues you a little bit. You can meditate on Romans chapter 6 this afternoon where Paul covers that some more. But God, uh, Paul says here that God gives you joy and grace in suffering because you're actually suffering for, on behalf of, alongside of Jesus. And then he ends it with this beautiful, beautiful thought. Oh, longtime Christians especially, have you ever thought to yourself, man, I wish I could have a faith like Paul's. You don't have to raise your hand, but I know you have. Will rejoice because verse 30 is for you because he says that they and we are in the same contest as Paul. The same struggles that grew Paul's faith are the struggles the Philippians are going through and the struggles that we are in or are coming. We get to have the same faith as Paul. And instead of being anxious and depressed as we see our country becoming more and more post-Christian, we believe God's word that God brings pressure to his people to grow them. And then we sit back and say, man, what an amazing time to be a Christian in America. God is doing great things in the church in America because he's building his church as he always does through trial, through difficulty, through persecution. And so those of us in Christ, we hold on to, okay, bring it, let's do this. Because the worthy face their adversaries united, knowing that both their status in Jesus and their struggle for Jesus are gifts. Well, let me wrap this up. So we can trust the grace that he promises us here in the battle because Jesus Christ himself waged hand-to-hand -hand combat against sin and Satan and death. And he is our great champion. And united to him, his victory is our victory. Jesus was the first to live worthy of the gospel. Standing firm and striving together in unity with his Father and the Holy Spirit. And he was not frightened. 
even when all hell was unleashed upon him in his life and on the cross. He proved his deliverance by God, and he proved the destruction of their enemies by the grace that he earned. And then in suffering, the triumphant Jesus now offers us graciously to be there with us. And he offers you to believe in him and then suffer with him. That's the beauty of Jesus in the gospel. Now, if you know this gospel already, see again its beauty and its loveliness and ask the Lord to help you desire this even more and to give you grace in your trials. And if you don't know Christ, this is biblical Christianity. I encourage you even now to repent and believe this gospel. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we do ask that you would help those of us who know you, that you would help us to live as citizens worthy of the gospel, that we would stand firm together, strive side by side in unity and not be frightened by our opposition, but instead, Lord, we would be living illustrations of your grace that you might use us to change a dying culture. And we pray, Lord, for those here who don't know you, we pray, Father, that you would be true to your promise to draw your people to yourself. So even now, Father, would you do your work, build your church, cause many to confess and believe in Christ. We pray this, Father, in his great name. Amen.